Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, August the 21st, 2023. As always on Monday, billions of dollars are being won and lost on the stock exchanges. There's some astonishing stories these days. There's a story of WeWork, a company that seems to be in free fall. Tens of billions of dollars have been lost by them in the property sector. One of the great speculations, um, Elon Musk admitted today that X that he recently bought for $45 billion may fail after a glitch deleted half of Twitter's or what was once called Fit Twitter's photos. Another former high flyer, PayPal, is in crisis. Uh, very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal about uh, Dan Shulman, who's quitting as their CEO, having what they euphemistically describe as a bumpy landing. Some might describe it as a crash landing. All it speaks to, of course, is that some companies are well-run, some others aren't. Uh, Shulman ran PayPal very well until he didn't. Uh, Musk is a masterful business leader on some fronts, clearly a failure on others. Meanwhile, companies like WeWorks are catastrophes. So how to make sense of all this? Uh, my guest today, Benam Tabrizi uh, is a longtime professor at Stanford, a man who's given a great deal of thought to why can't some companies succeed, why some fail. And there's a new book out. It's out tomorrow, Going on Offense, a leader's playbook for perpetual innovation. And he's joining us from a surprisingly rainy Palo Alto, Benam. What's happening down in Palo Alto? Well, we had a beautiful rain uh about an hour or two hours ago and i actually took a walk and it was just absolutely amazing in the middle of the summer where the world is just suffering from heat it was just beautiful to see the rain does it suggest uh, a new age of miracles yes sir i believe so so let's talk a little bit about your new book uh, going on offense you've, you've had a number of books in the past it seems to me in a sense your book is a counter to uh, Clayton Christensen, who was on the show many years ago. His argument about the innovator's dilemma, suggesting that once you innovate, you get imprisoned within that innovation. Are you suggesting that some people can escape the innovator's dilemma if they, using your language, go on offense? Wow, I never, I, not, I never thought about it this way, but now that you're bringing it up, Andrew, it does make sense. Um, of course, Christian said he's someone I, I admire and uh, he was a, a great friend. The, the idea here is you can escape innovators' dilemma, and uh, I think Christensen would agree with me, but the odds are stacked against you. So here's what I was interested. I was interested in order to escape, what are the ingredients uh, of culture? What are the characteristics of culture that you need to cultivate within your organization and within your people so that not only you escape the innovator's dilemma, but you perpetually innovate. As, as you read in these uh, key headlines, if you don't, if, if you kind of stand still, you get run over in, in, in the high tech industry. And many of the examples you mentioned, uh, 
um, and especially PayPal, is that you you got to always go on offense and perpetually innovate. So so those are some of the key things that the book really touches on. It's evidence-based. Uh, I was able to talk to many insiders and, and look at the industry uh, information within these major organizations. And I looked at both very successful ones and not so successful ones because I didn't want to have the survivalship bias that a lot of these uh, research has. One company that you look at in great detail, which is the hottest of hot companies now, ironically, since once upon a time, uh, no one took them seriously, was Microsoft. Explain what Satya Nadella has done at Microsoft to turn them into such a winner. Now, apparently, he's worth over a billion dollars just in his uh, stock ownership of Microsoft. Uh, he, the stock has risen a thousand percent since he became CEO in 2014. Is he your model of perpetually being on offense? Uh, I mean, I, I, I wrote an article in Harvard Business Review right after ChatGPT came, and I talk about how did Microsoft gain their innovation engine back. And I did compare Satya's uh, uh, story with the Googles. So uh, Satya is an interesting case study. Uh, 2014, he became CEO. He took over from the cloud division, which was fast growing. At that time, if people remember, Microsoft was, was hurting. Uh, Steve Ballmer uh, left, and uh, the company was you, not... You, that was uh, politely put. <laughs> yes. I'm not yeah. sure if he left out of choice. He was right. pushed out, I'm guessing, wasn't he? He may have been pushed out, but at the same time, you know, because he was an early Microsoft person and Bill Gates was still there, their shadows was, were still there. So... If, uh, if the pundits had to guess about Satya's uh, you know, legacy, they would have said he's going to have a tough job, doubt if he'll make it, he's an insider. But he proved everyone wrong. He connected to the soul of Microsoft. Uh, one of the key characteristics that I talk about what he did is uh, existential purpose. Uh, the, the mission of Microsoft used to be put one PC at every desk, and he said, no, no, what, what we want the existential purpose of Microsoft to be is to uh, empower every person, every organization on the planet to achieve more. And this was ingrained in everything he did. And uh, it wasn't just a mission statement. It was a, uh, you know, cause, it was a calling. And he made sure that this perpetuates and cascades throughout the organization. So there's a lot of things he did and in this book and in the article, I, I touched on some of those uh, key things. That uh, ben, um, yours is a, a business school book, uh, a playbook, you call it, for perpetual innovation. But aren't all leaders, in a sense, prisoners of history? Everyone laughs now at Balmer. But of course, when he took over... Um, Microsoft's lunch, so to speak, was being eaten by Google. He was obsessed with Google. But is it conceivable that had Nadella taken over when, but back in 2001, 2002, 2003, he would have made the same errors? In other words, all leaders are in their own ways prisoners of history? I think to some extent that's true. But, but, but let's think about what uh, Nadella inherited. Uh, there were lots of silos. Uh, the engineers were treated like second class. 
uh, he felt that the, the cloud was not, uh, you know, staffed well with the best uh, of people. The Nokia uh, acquisition was terrible. Disastrous. How much did they pay for that? And, and, you know, one of the first things he did is let's just scrap it. Let's just forget. I mean, that was a bold. He went after a few bold moves, which this was one of them, to just basically write off the Nokia and say, let's not waste our time on these. And he did a lot of sessions with people. He got together with his uh, uh, head of HR, Kathleen Hogan, who is, the, uh, by the way, graduate of the MBA program at Stanford. And based, they, they talked about what type of culture we aspire to, what type of culture we want to have in Microsoft. And they clearly delineated an architecture of a culture that is about learning, learning it all rather than knowing it all, which at that time was prevalent. Uh, they raised the status of engineers. They, they, they cut through a lot of the hierarchy. They created extreme collaboration. So there was a lot of intervention that he, Kathleen, and the entire senior team did that truly, truly made a difference. Do these big companies, uh, Ben, um, go through almost, it seems to me, inevitable cycles of rising and falling? Um, Apple, of course, is the most extreme case, IBM. But in, a, in other words, to have someone like um, Satya Nadella, who is so bold, they have to, they have to come with that gambling instinct. And he probably wouldn't have got the job or had the opportunity at a better point in the company's history. Well, I mean, to, 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 uh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to kind of juxtapose that with Google. Um, and right. around 2015, uh, Sundar Pichai became Google CEO. And at that time, Google wasn't doing that bad. And people thought it's going to be business as usual. Um, and I, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to read some of the things that are written about Google, but it, during my research, I noticed, I talked to a lot of ex-Google employees, and I noticed that the culture was becoming more conservative, a little bit toxic. You had to grow through lines of commands. Uh, it, it inertia was all over the place. And these are classic case of companies with the huge cash cows where uh, they focus on one or two streams of revenue. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, there was a lot of productivity loss with, with that organization at some point. I mean, this is critical. At some point, 70 percent of the top AI talent worked for Google. And here, uh, Satya a few years back, decided that he wants to, you know, be all hands on deck with, with AI, made some acquisitions, did the uh, open AI acquisition, the uh, investment, and then came back and, you know, stole the thunder under Google. So, Yeah, let, let's talk about AI because I'm not convinced that, that the situation is as, perhaps as resolved as you're suggesting. I mean, Google, of course, invented the, the white paper for, uh, generative AI came out of Google. Why didn't Google take it up? Is it because of their layers of bureaucracy? Was it a CEO failure? Well, uh, I, I agree that uh, the it, this is work in progress and we still are in the maybe, as the baseball fans say, it's the first uh, two or three innings of, of AI. 
And by the way, I'm not going to rule out Google's comeback because it has some amazing talent. Now, yeah, and you're I a big fan of Real Madrid. You know how teams come back. <laughs> exactly. And get lucky, too. So uh, basically, what I, what I like to uh, mention is that um, the, the feedback I'm getting from, uh, from people uh, who are close to Sundar and, uh, is that he's just a really, really nice guy. And uh, is that a nice way of saying in Silicon Valley that he's a loser? Well, you know, uh, you you basically you need to be a nice person. You also need to make very tough decisions. And in some way, I think going back to Satya, he has the best of personalities where he could be really tough and ruthless in terms of being competitive. At the same time, he could connect viscerally to people and very different than the style that Steve Jobs had on the early Apple or uh, Elon Musk sometimes uh, represents. So in, in some ways, I, I think it's a combination of two things. One is the, is the missteps by leadership, but secondly is being conservative and uh, you know, not to mess with things. And there was a lot of incrementalism that was going on at Google. And one of the things that I talk about, about going on offense is the boldness that requires from the employee, from the leaders, from the CEO. I was with a BC friend on the East coast a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking to me about what he called the, I, I won't mention names, but the culture of entitlement at Google. Yes. Um, how do you smash that? I mean, does it require um, an aggressive assault on corporate culture, which apparently uh, uh, the, the current CEO is hasn't achieved? I mean, right. How, how, and that entitlement came from the remarkable success of its first twenty-year history. Exactly. So um, the the two founders are back. Uh, uh, Sergey is all in on the on the AI. Uh, uh, the the history, as you said, is still need to be written. But this is why I wrote this book. And the reason I wrote this book is what are the steps? What's the playbook? And the number one thing that's critical, Andrew, is to be clear about what the problem is. Is to put a mugshot around the problem, identify the problem, prioritize the problem, get buy-in from everyone what the challenges are. I mean, you mentioned I've written other books. I've spent the life uh, career on, on organizational change and transformation in a fast-paced environment. So what you need to do is to be able to put a, a you know, mugshot around the problem. Like when people go to jail, they have a mugshot in front of them. Be clear about the problem and have a strategy about going at it and connecting to the roots, connecting to the existential purpose uh, being clear about the customer, um, the, 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 uh, what I talk about is bringing back the values that the founders bestow, bestowed upon the, uh, the, uh, the people in Google, bringing back that startup mentality. So there is uh, what, the thing about this book that I'm really proud of and I spent a, a lifetime on is many books talk about one topic and they just write 200, 300 pages about it. I talked about the holistic approach uh, and a playbook in terms of step-by-step -step on how do you transform a culture uh, to a perpetually innovative environment.
I want to take a short break, but before we get to that, let's just finish our conversation about Google. Ruth Porat is now the, the former CFO now has become president. And a lot of people aren't sure whether to quote an information piece, it's a coronation or a last dance. Do you think that um, Google needs a, a hard headed woman like Ruth Porat to shake things up? It, it, she sounds to me more of a uh, a number cruncher, a bean counter, than an innovator. Can you be both? Um, you know, she has an exceptional career, and she's really brought in already a lot of discipline, uh, being head of finance. So um, I think this, I, I don't think this is a permanent solution. I do think the founders are, are examining their option. I'm not even sure if uh, Sundar would, would stay. All I know is that time is running out and they need to take some really bold action in transforming the organization. And having the, the founders back uh, is, is a, a critical first step. Uh, but I do think this might be an interim solution in terms of a more longer term uh, remedy for the organization. Well, it's interesting stuff. I'll have to have you back in a year or two, Ben, <laughs> when... Um when uh, things are clearer on the Google front, although their stock seems to be doing quite well. Yeah, their stock is doing well, and Google is uh, one of the darlings of Silicon Valley. And I, I started out uh, studying what is the secret sauce of the Silicon Valley. So I ended up adding two companies, Microsoft and Amazon from Seattle, and then realizing that companies such as Google and Meta were struggling. So just because you're Silicon Valley doesn't give you a pass in terms of being a perpetually innovative. If you lose your eye off the ball, you can stumble. And Google is a great case, but I'm not willing to say Google is done. I think, again, there is a very high chance that they will be able to turn the ship around. Well, we're going to take a break, Ben. Um, now the sponsor of the show is Liberty's Quarterly, an excellent new quarterly out of Washington, D.C., a journal of culture and politics going to run a short ad for them and then we'll be back to talk more innovation winners and losers in the uh, tech space in particular i want to talk about meta i want to talk about amazon and apple and maybe we'll talk gm too so we'll be back in a, in about 30 seconds everyone please stay with us beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And to check out more, go to libertiesjournal.com. All my guests are going to get a, um, a free year subscription. So, uh, Ben Am, you'll have something to read when you're not reading about big tech. The company that always mystifies me because it doesn't fit into any category is Apple. We talk about reinvention. We talk about innovation. And when Steve Jobs died and Tim Cook took over Ben Am, Everyone expected them to fall into crisis, but exactly. the reverse is true. It's the most valuable company, not just in the world, but in the history of the world. I think it's about a $3 billion company. It seems as if Cook 
who's a grown-up, can make the trains run on time and also innovate. What's your take on Apple and how does it fit into your argument in going on offense? Well, Apple is a, is a great case uh, because, uh, you know, Steve had his first run and then he leaves and the uh, uh, professional managers take over and really take Apple uh, down the hill. And he comes back and his second version is more, uh, you know, friendlier, uh, much more visionary, much more focused. Um, and uh, uh, one of the guys, uh, uh, Dan Walker, who was his head of talent, told me we sat on this broken uh, furniture and uh, Steve said, we're going to cut everything except for R&D. And uh, he also cut a lot of products. He completely transformed the uh, board of directors. He brought in Larry Ellison. He made peace with uh, uh, Bill Gates. So his coming back was truly astounding. But throughout this whole process, Tim Cook was his protege. And one of the things that often uh, the pundits uh, don't realize about Tim Cook is that uh, Steve Jobs actually has been worked with Tim quite a bit and worked on making sure that some of his values are passed on to Tim Cook in the Tim Cook fashion of the discipline, as you mentioned. So, um, and then Tim Cook found his own footing, if you will. There's a great story uh, that Ron Johnson uh, told me. Ron Johnson was the person behind the Apple uh, store, the genius from uh, Target, who, who actually wrote in my book that this should be, become required reading in boardrooms. He, he actually, when he hired Ron Johnson to create this Apple store, he called Ron uh, and uh, Ron said in the evening, and Ron said, you know, I would love to talk to you in the evenings, but I have two young children. And he said, well, when, when do your kids uh, sleep? And Ron said, well, about 9 p.m. He says, okay, I'd like to call you 9 p.m. pretty much every day and talk to you. <laughs> and then Ron told me basically, the whole point about Steve was that he wanted his values to be passed on to Ron so that Ron doesn't need to check in with Steve when he makes decisions. And Ron said those conversations were the most uh, educational conversation they've ever had. And it's a chapter I devote to the book called Pygmalion. Pygmalion is a story of this Greek mythology about the Cyprus sculptor that developed the and sculpted the sculpture of his dream woman and then she became alive and then he espoused his uh, his his thinking and manifested his thinking and so uh, that's what really apple was all about so uh, the tim cook uh, you know at the end of the day everyone thinks he's only disciplinary but he's done a very good job in terms of keeping the values, in terms of how this organization should be work together, which is very different. This is why I studied these different organizations, uh, Andrew, because the whole point is, uh, you know, and I have an infinity sign on, on in this book, which is there is no one way to success. There's different ways. And Apple's culture, Apple's hierarchy is different than, uh, let's say, Tesla or, or Microsoft. But at the same time, within that context, it works really well. And uh, Tim Cook, to his credit, has done amazing. One of the things that seems to tie Nadella and, um, and Cook together is they both have very, very good reputations as people. 
they're not bullying they're not outrageous they don't offend anyone they do their business they're professional um whatever one says about steve jobs he was clearly a remarkable man one of the great geniuses in american history but he also was a jerk i know many people who loathe the man uh when it comes to the leadership you want innovation how important is it to be an adela or a cook and have an ethical i mean these are not perfect people by any means and certainly the companies aren't but to have a degree of ethical responsibility of ethical maturity that jobs didn't always have and certainly somebody like elon musk doesn't seem to have that's a fantastic question and we debate about this in the in the business school quite a bit uh, let me share with you what the at least the consensus is and that is uh, steve on his second uh showing at apple realized that he doesn't need to be as uh abrasive as he used to be now he was never you know perfect he still had his edges but he got a lot better uh, so um elon is uh is also a, a, a abrasive character these guys have major flaws uh and uh one thing is 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 uh is is important is that despite or in spite of their clear flaws there are brilliant geniuses. I mean, I really, these two figures, and, and a lot of your listeners are going to not like me, uh, is I think both of these guys are uh, uh, national treasure for the United States. I mean, other countries would love to have uh, a, a quarter of what Elon has done or what Steve Jobs has done. And, and you know, the, the environment and the context of Silicon Valley also helped both of them succeed. Elon is obviously an immigrant. So, so they get away with it because they are like so, uh, they're so productive and they, they were able to do amazing things. But in general, not everybody is like them, so gifted, like be 0.0001%. And I must say both Tim Cook and Satya from Understanding and people who work with them and even Jeff Bezos, they have moments where they could be really brutal, but at the same time, they connect from a humanity point of view. And, and Steve did that. Uh, I know Steve better more than I know Elon, but he did that to his, uh, to his credit. So at the end of the day, you don't need to be as brutal, but just about every successful leader I've seen, uh, they are they're very good with people. At the same time, they're very brutal in terms of... Uh, making sure that all the eyes are on the ball. There is alignment in the organization. There is a perpetual innovation because as you well know, and the history of Google and somewhat Facebook talks about is that when you take your eye off the gas, there is, there tend to be an entropy. And this is very normal. Most organizations become like that. So having a, a, you know, a leaders to go on offense and always be kind of a, uh, focus with 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 the staff and, and people at all levels of the organization is so critical. That's why I picked that name. Is that these organizations perpetually go on offense? How responsible should some of these leaders be, not just for their own companies, but for the reputation of tech in Silicon Valley? The New York, uh, the New Yorker today has a, a major piece by Ronan Farrow, one of the most uh, influential journalists of any kind in America these days, uh, Mia Farrow's son, 
on Elon Musk's shadow rule. Musk hasn't necessarily always engendered good feeling towards tech. In terms of their general behavior, do you think that somebody like Musk needs to grow up and show more responsibility and, and not annoy people with talk of cage fights with Mark Zuckerberg? I, I, I think that's a fair statement. I mean, uh, we all wish that he would act more like grown-ups and not do these tweets. And it's just not me. A lot of people in Tesla, SpaceX I've talked to, they wish he would just, you know, be a little bit more well-behaved. But again, you know, this is a very complicated person. And uh, he's done some amazing work. And so, uh, you know, the type of companies, the industries that spawned out of his focus and, you know, with his uh, with his wealth, he could be just retired and enjoying his life. But he's 24 seven on. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, if if uh, if we all had our wishes, we would have loved to see that um, and hoping hoping that through this Twitter thing, he would grow. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if there would. There's nothing like a, a failure for these guys. I mean, Steve Jobs getting uh, uh, kicked out of Apple truly got him to shake his faith and rethink how he wants to show up. So maybe that would work for Elon. Yeah, jo Jobs sort of pioneered the idea that you couldn't run more than one company at a time. He was at Pixar and Apple. Musk, of course, is at Tesla, at X, at SpaceX. Yeah. You're an expert on leader's playbook, Ben. Um, how can... I understand that being a leader doesn't mean that you're involved in every aspect of a company, but at a certain point, does somebody like Musk have to pull back and say, I can only run three companies or four companies? At what point does it become absurd and counterproductive? Well, if he was here in our meeting, he would say there's a 50% chance that I'm a cyborg. <laughs> Because he's, he's, I don't know how he does it. I mean, I talked to people that reported to, to Elon and this literally, Andrew, this is what they told me. Like I would go and uh, know about the subject. 99% of the su subject, I'm just perfectly, that's what I do 24 seven. And then he knew like 1% as much depth as I did. But he was such a, a, a meta leader where he could just widen the aperture, look at the big picture, had a vision where I walk away with insight that I was just like floored. And, and, and he basically said, you know, the guy is absolutely brilliant. And this was Tesla. And, and his feedbacks were right on. And uh, it, it truly made, made a difference in terms of the success of of tesla so uh you know the uh, he is uh, he is very different i think historians will probably study him isaacson is uh, is is yeah a, isaac uh, walter isaacson has a new book out about him at the beginning of the next month hopefully we get uh, yeah walter on the show I, i've heard the book is quite sympathetic but it'd be interesting let's end uh we haven't talked uh, much uh facebook meta had Mark, had Mark Zuckerberg picked up your book, Going on Offense, it might have justified his enormous gamble in the metaverse. At what point, though, does offense become disastrous? I mean, being going on offense doesn't always guarantee success. What do you make of Zuckerberg as a leader and particularly the 
what seems to be, at least at this point, a rather ill-advised uh, bet on the metaverse. Yeah, and and I, I, I I'm definitely not a clairvoyant, but when he went all he went all in on metaverse, I what I thought it was just. I mean, I every every gathering that I was involved, every class that I taught, I always said this this doesn't make any sense. And in fact, there is a chapter in the book that talks about if you want to bet big on something, do a lot of iteration, try test cases, get feedback, and and do what, for example, uh, Jeff Bezos did with the cloud. Do what Jeff Bezos did with Firefly, that didn't work. And he decided to abandon it, but didn't spend as much, uh, you know, money as he did on. If he was a CEO and spent as much money on one concept without the proof of concept, he probably would have been fired. Um, I also have a lot of uh, uh, quotes from him where he said, well, "Let's let's make sure we keep our startup culture. Let's not have too much hierarchy." And then, yet, Microsoft ended up have becoming extremely hierarchical. And just like like we talked about, he 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 you know took his eye off the ball, and there was there was a lot of problems with the culture. Now, to his credit, the past six months, seven months, Andrew, he's been on offense. He's all over it. The way he pivoted to AI is astounding. He doesn't talk that, that much about metaverse. Uh, he's uh, just today. I read that he's asked his people to come back uh, three days a week. Uh, on campus. So he, he and the stock has done uh, quite well. So he's definitely trying to turn the ship around in spite of that really, really what I think in, in retrospect, a huge, huge gamble that I believe just he just he just went too crazy on that. And I just I still I, I would love to do a case study about why is it that he just invested so much? Yeah, and he got away with it. And of course, one of the reasons he got away with it is because he controls his own board. He can't be fired. Exactly. Exactly. So well, let's end with Microsoft. We've talked all the big companies except for Amazon. You mentioned them, Jeff Bezos. The one thing about Bezos is he seems to be a master of timing. We've done lots of shows on, on Bezos, particularly with Brad Stone, his yes, his unofficial biographer at least um what does what does bezos teach us which nadella and cook and jobs don't teach us what does he bring or what did he bring to the table and what are the challenges today for amazon as they're trying to reinvent themselves as a post jeff bezos company you know um i i when i think about amazon i'm floored that they have 1.3 million people organization and they are a perpetual innovator and they've been on offense nonstop. Truly it's, it's a credit to him. He's not like, uh, uh, you know, he's very different than Steve jobs or Elon Musk, but he is brilliant, amazing business sense. And, uh, he, uh, he created new management thinking as he went on. I mean, this whole concept, where, uh, you know, Andy Grove used to say only paranoid survived. He created this distinction between day one, where you have a startup mentality versus day two, which uh, what, what companies like Google and Facebook felt. And he basically told everyone that you will be, we will be extinct quickly and we will go away like the other organizations uh, that have gone away. But we need, and in order to survive, we need to double down. We need to, mm -hmm. you know, go on offense on culture 
And, uh, you know, uh, just one example, uh, the person who worked on the Firefly phone and it didn't go anywhere was really depressed. Uh, he called him at night and said, I don't want you to think about the second about what you did. Let's take the learning. Let's move on. Alexa was born out of that. Them going to cloud out of this basically a retail digital business. It's a, it's a storybook uh, business story and how he, uh, he, he, he saw this and, and Google and uh, IBM and others followed them. So Amazon, it's, it's uh, again, another business tycoon. Uh, just one, one thing to add to just for your listeners. He used to look uh, on his side and say, whatever you guys do, don't become like the company next door, which was Microsoft. And this was before Satya took over. So that's another interesting tidbit about Amazon. Yeah, it's ironic. And let's let's end where we began with uh, PayPal, not one of the better known, best known companies, but they a couple of years ago were 300 billion on the public markets. Now they're worth about 50, which is an astonishing decline. What do you need to do at a company like PayPal to um, to reinvent it? Um, have a new CEO now. What advice would you give? So I would uh, I would uh, basically call in all the key senior team. Uh, like I said, I will be very clear about the problem. I would also look into people, uh, you know, create uh, what we call psychological safety so people could really speak up and say what, what is going wrong. I would also have everyone to uh, quickly study the industry and see where the next waves of, uh, uh, you know, growth is. And then I will uh, make sure that my head of HR is, is, uh, is going to help me create a culture of uh, perpetual innovation and then look into this industry. I mean, at the end of the day, organization in fintech like PayPal are middlemen, as Chamat calls it, and they need to find new revenue models and they need to think about how are they going to survive. So uh, there has to be some existential discussion about the future of this organization and like you said, financial engineering is not going to get you there. You need innovation. That's what Silicon Valley is known for. That's what U.S. is known for. And that's why I wrote this book. 